God is good. What profundity is in that statement? God is good. There are so many layers and so many depths to that understanding, the concept of God being good, God being good, that we will not plummet those depths for all eternity. We might think we've got to the end of it and we have yet to hardly begin. God is good. The psalmist, David, wrote these words in Psalm 36, verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Herman Witsius once said this of God, he is an inexhaustible fountain of all desirable good, not only what equals, but also what infinitely transcends his conceptions and desires. We'll not be bored in heaven, for we shall see God, God in, in, in his immensity, in his fullness, as much as finite creatures can ascertain the infinite we will be awed by our God. He is good. He is wholesome, full of integrity. He's virtuous. He's beautiful. To see him is to enjoy awe-inspiring grandeur. He's morally perfect. All of that is in the word good. God is good. He's absolute in goodness. Because of that, God cannot be pleased with anything less than good. He is good, and his goodness means that only that which is good is pleasing to him. In an ultimate sense, he can be pleased only with himself, one man said. I believe that's true. Ultimate goodness, that being God and God alone is to be celebrated for what it is and what he is. Goodness is to be praised, celebrated, adored, delighted in. And therefore, not only is it right for us to praise God for his goodness, but it's right for God to seek that his goodness would be praised. All through our Bibles, we're told to give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. First Chronicles 16, verse 34. Let me just turn there. First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 34. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. That's the reason given here. Why should we give thanks to the Lord? For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. He's good. He's not 
good for a little while or good at certain moments, or perhaps you'll find him in a good mood sometime. He's altogether good, always has been, always will be, and that knowledge is a rock beneath our feet because he's the rock beneath our feet and he is good now and forever. His steadfast love endures forever. Why? He's good. He's good. On into the psalm, Psalm 106. I just want to showcase the fact that this is a repeated theme. In fact, uh, the words are repeated. Psalm 106, verse 1. Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 107, the very next psalm, verse 1. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 118, verse 1. Are we getting the picture? O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 136, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. It's right to give God thanks and praise for the glory of his goodness. Now, there are other attributes of God, for sure. But God is good in all his attributes. He's good in his sovereignty. He's good in his justice. He's good in his mercy. He's good. He's altogether good. This is the end of all things. This is the goal of all things. What is? God and his attributes put on display. We'll come back to that. Stephen Charnock said this, Goodness is the brightness and loveliness of our majestical creator. To fancy a God without that, to, to, to think about, in other words, it's old English, to fancy a God without it is to fancy a miserable, scanty, narrow-hearted, savage God. And so an unlovely and horrible being, for he is not a God that is not good. It, it's true to say this knowledge of the goodness of God is the ground beneath our feet for our love for him. Bernard of Clavoy, who lived between 1090 and 1153, said this, the motive for loving God is God. You ever thought like that? This is just meditation about God. This is part of what it means to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To continue the quote, the motive for loving God is God. No title can be stronger than this. God gave himself to us in spite of our unworthiness and being God, what could he give us of greater worth than himself? End of quote. Yeah, the motive for loving God is God. Not merely the things he does for us. But God, God is worthy of our praise because he's altogether good. We, we can never exhaust this 
topic. We, we can't. Again, to quote Stephen Charnock, he is too rich to have any cause of envy and too good to have any will to envy. That's just mind-blowing. That's why we love him. He's not envious of our gifts and thinks, oh, they're getting too much. He has everything and he's too rich to even have envy and he's good to even have any will to envy, Charnock said. How true that is. Psalm 34, 8. Have you tasted this? The scripture says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him, that's the King James. Praise the Lord. Turn to Romans chapter 9. <clears throat> this is one of those chapters that when you get into it, it's hard to get out of it. But I just want to jump in to a section after Paul has made it very clear that salvation is because of the electing grace of God. He goes on and talks about the why behind it. Why would God not choose everyone? Have you ever thought of that? I'm sure you have. Why does he not choose everyone to save? And why does he choose some? Well, the reason is never found in the creation. The creator has set his love on the creation, and there was nothing in the creation that caused God to say, I'm going to choose this one over that one. It wasn't because I chose this one because he was better at this or he was more intelligent. He was more this. He was more that. There was nothing in us. It was his sovereign electing grace. Yet the reason we told he made the choice was to the praise of his glory so that he would get glory in saving the glory of his grace is magnified in leaving others to their willful treacherous rebellion he is glorified in his justice but in both cases he is glorified you and i think of that and we think from our little armchair as a man as a human being i'm not sure i like that i understand but this is the God who is. This is the only God there, there is, the God who rules and reigns and is right for God. And his defense is this. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And you and I have nothing in the fight here. We can't say, well, that's wrong. How is it wrong for God to say, I'm going to have mercy whenever I want to and on whom I want to. Just think in the business realm at the end of a year, for tax reasons, some companies will want to give to charities. They want to do something on their books that make it known they're giving to charity and they can get a tax write-off for doing so. Imagine a very wealthy organization that has a million dollars to give away in December and they have to do it by December 31st for it to be recorded in that calendar year. And they choose, the company chooses, 10 organizations to give $100,000 to. $100,000 times 10 equals $1 million. That's what they do. Well, 
there is no legal course for an, an 11th organization to say, that's not fair. You should have chosen us. We're a good company too, you know. What can they do legally? No, the company has every right to do with its assets what it wills, right? And there's no courtroom that's going to say, yeah, we're going to hear this trial. This company should go on trial. Well, God's not on trial if he shows mercy to whom he wills and hardens whom he wills. In other words, leaves in their rebellion. There's two ways God could harden the heart. One is to inject fresh evil into the heart. That's something abhorrent, and God never does that, nor does he need to. The other way of hardening is to leave someone in their rebellious condition. They hear the proclamation of God, they hear the gospel, and they don't change. They don't want change. They don't want the God of the Bible. And that is a hardening. And that's what's in view when God hardens the heart. He leaves them in their rebellion, passes over them leaves them to the judgment they justly deserve. Now, all of that is in view in Romans 9. And we have the objection to election in verse 14, the imaginary objector that Paul is aware of as he's writing. This is almost as if he realizes, as I write this, because I've taught this doctrine before, here's an objection that's raised. Here's what he says. What? Shall we say then, is there injustice on God's part? On his part for what? For choosing some and not all. By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, <clears throat> it, it being divine election, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this, very person I've, uh, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, this is very much a summing up. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, again, an imaginary objector, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Here's the answer. But who are you, O man, to act, answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? It's a question that's raised. And what's the answer? Well, of course, the potter has every right to do what he wishes here. Verse 22, what if God, here's what I want to focus on, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power. Two motivations are listed. God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Not only 
from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Notice that though. We have the word show, verse 22. We have the words make known. In verse 23, make known. And what's being shown? What is being made known? God's attributes. God's attributes being put on display. Ladies and gentlemen, can you hear this? That's the goal of all things. That's where everything is headed. So that at a certain point, God's attributes are put on display. And that's the reason for everything. God desiring to show to make known his wrath, his power, and the riches of his glory. See, God's attributes being put on display, you and I might think, I'm not sure I like that. That's true. In a man-centered universe, we'd say, I'm not sure I like that because I want me to be the center of the universe. Uh, You might say, I never think like that. Look, I've seen how some folk drive. (laughs) Is it true of you? We're always upset when someone cuts us off. How would they do that to us in traffic? Yeah, true. But rightly understood, because God is altogether good, it's right that everything is headed for the display of the glory of God and who he is. That's why the heavens are here. God himself declares it, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above his handiwork. Day to day, they pour forth speech. They're shouting out, glory to God, glory to God, glory to God. Why is that planet out there so, 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 so far away? For the glory of God, for the glory of God. If we could hear it speak, that's what it's doing. And poetically speaking, Psalm 19 says that's what's taking place. Why is the universe so vast? So vast. Because God is so glorious. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God. As far as our telescope can take us, what we're seeing is for the glory of God. And it wasn't us. It was him that is the focus of all things and the glory of God is the end, the goal of everything. It's why everything's made and it's where everything's heading. Why is this good news? Because God is good. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. In fact, let's turn there. Second book of our Bible, Exodus chapter 33. So it's good to see these rather than merely hear them, these scriptures. Exodus 33, the prayer of Moses, verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. What a prayer. Not show me your power, not show me this action of yours, not give me a miracle display. Moses went for the big one. (laughs) 
there's nothing bigger than this. Show me. Show me your glory. Is that desire on the inside of you? That more and more through the light of Scripture, you would be shown his glory. May I provoke you to pray that kind of prayer for yourself. Lord, rather than me just simply talking about my needs right now, and I will, there's nothing wrong to pray for our needs, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus taught us to say those words. But there's something more than simply our needs being met. Here's why our greatest need is to see his glory to bask in the beauty and the splendor of God. And that's what we will do for all eternity. And that's why we won't be bored there. What a prayer. It's a short prayer. I invite you to pray it. Join with me in saying, Lord, please show me your glory. And what was God's answer? Verse 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. You might think now, why were we in Romans 9 when we're talking about the goodness of God? Because Romans 9 and Exodus 33 are inseparably linked. To know something of the goodness of God, you must understand the rightness of God in showing mercy to whom he will. Divine election is not a doctrine that should be on the periphery of our faith. It's at the heart of it. God being sovereign in all he does. So Moses said, please show me your glory. And God's answer is this. I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. That's Yahweh. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. All of God's moral attributes are summed up in that little word, goodness. That's the ground of our love for him, his goodness. And this will cause us to be attentive and thrilled in endless ages. We've been raised up with Christ, Ephesians 2, verse 6 says, and we now sit with him in heavenly places. And we're told in verse 7 of that chapter, the why, so that in the coming ages, he might show 
the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We saw in verse 19 of Exodus 33, Exodus 33, 19, I'll make my goodness pass before you. Turn to the next chapter, Exodus 34, and verse 6. The Lord, that's Yahweh, passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Worshipped. In God's answer, I'll show you my goodness. I'll make all my goodness pass before you. Exodus 34 summarize, summarizes that goodness as his amazing attributes, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's a summing up of what goodness is. Have you tasted? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. He's supremely good. He's uniquely good. He's infinitely good. He's unchangeable in his goodness. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, I am the Lord, I do not change. I don't change. There's no variation. This is our God. Turn now to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, it's an incident recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, the, the, the Synoptic Gospels as we call them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Sin meaning with, S-Y-N, and optic meaning view or to see. If you go to the opticians, you're getting help with your sight. Synoptic means from the same view, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke present certainly similar uh, a similar view of Jesus, and that's why John's gospel is so very different. It's Jesus from a different view. Complementary rather than contradictory, but it's a different view. But in the three gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see this incident recorded of the rich young ruler. Let's go to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And we read these words, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So much are in these few verses, these two verses, 
we need to ask this. Some people have used this, the cults have used this to say Jesus was making it clear he wasn't God. Only God's good. Why are you calling me good? Only God's good. That's to misunderstand the entire passage and everything else scripture says. No. Did Jesus say he wasn't good? No, not at all. We should build our doctrine on explicit statements rather than what could be some kind of implied message. No, Jesus didn't say he wasn't good. Not at all. Did he say he wasn't God? No, not at all. What did he do? He simply asked why the man called him good and then said only God is good. There's uniqueness when it comes to the word good. Only God qualifies as being someone to be called good. Regarding us, there is none that are good, none that do good. Romans 3, quoting the Old Testament. So, only God is good. You know, that's a true statement. And the question that Jesus was asking, why do you call me good, would reveal the answer as the man thought about it. And it was obvious. The question in mind, um, why do you call me good? It was clear the man had no idea who he was speaking to. He was speaking to God, who is ultimately good. None of that is denied in the passage. None of that. Jesus is God and Jesus is good. The point here is the man had no idea who he was talking to. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Verse 19. You know the commandments? Ah. What does Jesus do? He takes the man to the commandments and sees... Um, whether or not the man is good. Now, Jesus knew the man wasn't good, but the man didn't think so. And so, Jesus took him to the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the man, he said to him, teacher, he's dropped the good at this point, teacher, dropped the good teacher rhetoric, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Hmm. Such was his deception that he thought he had kept all these. He basically thought he was thoroughly good himself. I've done all that. I want to know how to inherit eternal life. You're telling me keep the commandments. I've done all that. What, what's next? And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Now, it's clear he lacked many things. But one thing would be the overall canopy statement as to the other things. One thing you need. One thing you lack. You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. 
That sounds like a lot. Well, in telling the young man to do this, it would reveal whether or not he had kept the, the commands of God. Why? The first one is love God with all your heart and have no other gods before me. And really what Jesus did was expose the fact that he hadn't kept any of the Ten Commandments because money was his God and he couldn't give it away. <clears throat> There's a real danger that money and wealth rules our hearts. And one of the ways we know whether or not that is not the case is what we do with our money. And you cannot have God as the God of money, your God being the God of money, if you're giving it away. You can't. Money can't be your God if you're giving it away. And Jesus telling the young man to do this and him not being able to do it meant there were other gods before God in this man's heart. Money was his God. He was rich. He was very rich. He was exceedingly rich, Gospel of Luke says. Disheartened by the saying, he, that's the man, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You could equally say great possessions had him. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. We understand that's an impossible thing. Then for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Salvation is impossible on an earthly plane. It has to be God working. Take out a heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. It's an impossibility by man's mechanisms. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. We've talked about the goodness of God. This man clearly did not understand who he was talking to. Did not understood uh, and did not understand the goodness of Jesus. And when we think of God, I just want us to mull over and muse over the fact that God is good. He's altogether good. He's never been less than good in what has taken place in your life and my life. Some of the things that I've gone through, some of the things you've gone through, you think, where was God and why? And I'm not sure we'll get an answer here. I'm not even sure if we'll get an answer there. Job had many questions, uh, none of which were answered except for God asking Job questions. Uh, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? There's no Bible verse that says everything will be explained to us. But I think what will be the comfort of our hearts then as it is now is God you never fell off your throne in anything you did. You never were less than good. You're altogether good. And I bow and worship. I bow and I worship. God, you're good. For the Lord is good. 
and his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your greatness, your goodness, your majestic, you are majestic in your goodness. And we stand in awe. Through the revelation of the scripture, our hearts can feed on your goodness now without seeing you. Our hearts, it may be said, do see you. But one day, our eyes will too. In my flesh, Job said, I shall see God. Job 19. Lord, we look forward to that day when our faith will be sight. In the meantime, we walk by faith, not by sight. Knowing that you are all together good. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.